Welcome back to Sideline Exposure. I'm your host, Mitchell Crossan, and this is Exposure 112, and this is another two-part series. In this first part, we're looking at the University of Miami football program and really their storied run and their power in the late 80s and 90s and early 2000s, which led to their multiple national championships and Heisman Trophy winners, etc. Part two will cover some of the NCAA investigations and scandals and ramifications that the Hurricanes saw. And so we'll briefly touch upon it here, but won't get into it too much. But we do want to look at why Miami was such a prominent program and why they had so much success in the 80s and 90s. So, again, another storied program. And they have their fair share of national championships, star players, draft picks, and, of course, scandals in NCAA investigations. The Hurricanes have five national championships, which came in 1983, 1987, 1989, 1991, and 2001. They also have two Heisman Trophy winners, and so they have the history to look back on. But here I want to start with the Jimmy Johnson era, which took place from 1984 to 1988. And a lot of these head coaches for Miami had shorter tenures as they went on to take bigger and better jobs at the time. And Jimmy was another coach that had a short tenure. But this really seemed to be something in the start of something special with the Hurricanes. So during the 1985 season, they actually started that season with a loss to Florida on the road. But the games in the losing column quickly came to an end, especially because in this season at home, Miami developed a huge home field advantage. And this was the start of a 58 home game winning streak, which is ridiculous. But the 1985 season also ended with a loss to Tennessee in the Sugar Bowl while being ranked as the number two team in the country. So they had national championship implications at that time going into that game, but this loss to Tennessee diminished any chance that they had of that. But of course, a successful season nonetheless, and the hype train was riding high going into the following season. And Miami started off great. With the 1986 regular season, they went 11-0, and they dominated their opponents along the way. And at this point, they were destroying everybody and they had outscored their opponents 420 to 136 and on a per game basis that's an average win of 35 to 11 so dominance the whole way and at this point they went on to play number two ranked penn state in the 1987 fiesta bowl and that was at the point where the hurricanes quote-unquote outlaw image really started to take place and grow amongst the media and the public, or as you could call it, the Miami swagger, if you want to turn it into a little bit more of a positive note. But that swagger didn't hold up here, with Miami losing 14-10 to Penn State. So they've gotten close to previous years, but couldn't quite get over that final hump. They did get over the hump the following year, defeating their rival Florida State during the regular season, on their way to an undefeated season and national championship by defeating Oklahoma in their bowl game. And, of course, the highlight of the year is going undefeated and bringing home that national championship. But the rival with Florida State was big, and Florida State was good at the time as well. And so being able to beat them in the regular season, which is the main reason why that kept you undefeated in winning that that national championship, had to feel really good. Especially because in that game, Miami actually trailed late. And they were down 19-3 to in the third quarter. So to come back and win and pull off that dub had to feel really good against the Seminoles. So here the Hurricanes are looking to repeat as national champs for the 1988 season, 
but run into a little bit of a speed bump playing Notre Dame in the regular season. And this is the classic Catholics versus convicts game with the fighting Irish going on to win the national championships themselves because they beat Miami in this game 31-30. So a quick look ahead here. Jimmy Johnson went on to leave the program in 1989 to coach the Dallas Cowboys. So that ended his career in Miami 52-9 overall. And he had a national championship under his belt. So overall, successful tenure for Jimmy and for the Miami football program. But I do want to take a look at the Catholics versus convicts game here because this was something that got a lot of stories, a lot of details, and a lot of traction. And ESPN had their famous 30 for 30 about this. And I took a look at an ESPN article written in 2016, and they do a quick summary about the game here. Notre Dame only won by 1.3130, and Miami had scored at the end and decided to go for the win, and Notre Dame just swatted away a two-point conversion with 45 seconds left to play. So I respect that call. I respect going for the win rather than trying to tie it and push it into OT. But what's funny about this game is that Miami was the defending national champs and had won 16 games in a row. They had also smashed Notre Dame the previous year, 58-7. to So the talk of the town was... Not only about revenge, being in the Fighting Irish's backyard, but people were saying that they couldn't really hang with Miami. And Miami and Notre Dame had a little bit of a rivalry themselves. And so this was a lot of motivation, extra added motivation for Notre Dame. But if you look in the stands or look back at some clips from the that game or the 30 for 30 that ESPN put out, there were fans that were seen wearing t-shirts with the phrase, Catholics versus convicts. And this is what people think about when they hear that phrase. So there were two Notre Dame students that actually came up with this idea. And I found an SB Nation article where they outlined that one of the students had actually built a little t-shirt business out of his own dorm room. And that was where these t-shirts came from. The university actually learned about this and told them they had to shut down the operation, as I guess this is against the university's code or rules or whatever the case may be. But the main idea behind the shirts is that Miami had, at that point, a kind of harsh, brash, rule-breaking image and were essentially the villains or the bad boys in college football. Versus Notre Dame, being a Catholic school, had a clean-cut image and the stigma and image around both programs were on different ends of the spectrum. Now, do I agree that Notre Dame had the perfect clean-cut image? Not necessarily. And I'm not the only one that thought that. There was a former Miami offensive tackle, Leon Searcy, that said in a quote about Notre Dame that they were spoiled, briefcase-carrying prep boys, end quote. And that's kind of funny because I don't think I could say it any better than he did. And it really does feel that way. I feel like Notre Dame and some of their students or some of their players, it feels almost kind of pretentious. And it does kind of feel like, the fancy rich prep school or whatever that case may be. But nonetheless, that's the idea behind those shirts. And that's the idea behind the Catholics versus convicts game itself. But no doubt about it, this game was huge and it had national championship implications. It was really like a national championship game itself because you had Notre Dame who beat Miami and went on to win it that year themselves. But tempers were flying high in the pregame and this went on to become an all-time game, and the Notre Dame head coach, Lou Holtz, had actually promised a win the day before, and 
these guarantee wins you got to be careful about. Now, of course, you're going to hear about, hey, we guaranteed this before if it actually is successful. But, you know, you don't hear about the times when the wins aren't successful or when the guarantees aren't successful. But moving back to our timeline here, Jimmy Johnson left the program and Dennis Erickson took over at the helm for the Hurricanes. And in his first season, Miami won the national championship, avenging their loss over Notre Dame. So off to a great start. Can't complain about that. And then we look into the 1990 season. The Hurricanes were the number one team in the country, rightfully so. But they actually lost to BYU to start the year. And so their championship implications or hoping for a repeat ended very quickly, which is with an uncharacteristic loss, really. They also lost to Notre Dame that year, which was known as the final conflict. And that's because the fighting Irish administrators has pretty much deemed that the rivalry had reached an unprofessional level. And so the Miami and Notre Dame rivalry was discontinued after the final conflict in 1990. So while they underperformed, Miami actually ended the 1990 season with a Cotton Bowl win over Texas. And they smashed the Longhorns 46-3. And to think why Miami had a bad reputation, they actually had nine unsportsmanlike conduct and personal foul penalties in that game. And to highlight one of them, they had a wide receiver by the name of Randall Hill who sprinted out of the end zone and pretended to shoot at Longhorn fans in the stands after pulling in a touchdown pass. So is that the worst thing you could do? No. Is it a big deal necessarily? No. But it just backs up the image that the Miami football program still had. And so they were still being criticized about this. So following the conclusion of really that game in that season, the NCAA came up with what was kind of known as the Miami rule. And this is where you start to see them enforcing a 15 yard penalty in response to any sort of excessive celebration or taunting. Miami's actions by their players was really just a bad look for the sport And so that was the main reason why the NCAA came up with this rule. So now we look ahead at the 1991 season. And Miami's continuing to stay on this dominant path of pulling in big wins every year. And this year, they finished 12-0 and secured their fourth national championship in school history. This was also the first year that Miami had joined the conference in the Big East. And they had remained independent for so long. But they went on to join the Big East and... In that championship game, they defeated Nebraska 22-0. So a great start to join a conference and a great start to pull in another national championship right away. But the 1992 season was a little bit different with Hurricane Andrew bringing a lot of destruction to the state of Florida. And so the teams had to relocate and switch things up a little bit for their fall camp. Miami actually relocated their preseason practice to Dodgerton in Vero Beach. And you would think that that would create a hiccup or slow teams down a little bit, but it didn't slow down Miami at all. They actually started 11 and 0 in the 1992 season. And they had the second toughest schedule in the country as well. So it's not like they were playing cupcakes. Their quarterback Toretta also won the Heisman trophy that year. And it's funny to look back at the stats now because it's not the same, but he threw for 19 touchdowns, a little over 3000 yards and had an appearance on their way to another national championship game. But they didn't win here, so they didn't repeat. They lost to Alabama 34-13, and so this ended a 29-game winning streak for the Hurricanes, 
slowly starting a little bit of a downfall for the Miami football program, but nothing really too major. Now, a downfall is to be taken lightly here because we take it with a grain of salt, but when you're undefeated and winning or at least competing for national championships every year, anything less than that feels like a down year. So we say that because the 1993 season comes around, Miami lost three games, which is the first time they'd done that since 1984. And they didn't three-peat as Big East champs. And 1994 wasn't actually much better at all, with Miami finally losing a home game to the Washington Huskies, which snapped that 58 home game winning streak. But good news for Hurricane fans, in 1995, Miami bounced back to play number one ranked Nebraska for the national championship, but they lost that game 24-17. At this point, there were also some threats of NCAA sanctions, so head coach Erickson stepped down to coach the Seattle Seahawks, which sounds awfully familiar to the Pete Carroll situation at USC, who also stepped down to coach the Seahawks after their sanctions came out. But we won't get into the sanctions too much. We'll go over this and spend much more time on this later in part two of this series. But now we're looking at Erickson's career at Miami in a nutshell. And he went 63-9 and over six seasons and had the highest winning percentage of .875. He also had the most national championships in his tenure over any other coach in Miami program history with two. And so obviously very successful again for not only Erickson, but for the Miami football program as well. So this now brings us to the next great era of Miami football, which is the Butch Davis era. And this starts in 1995. And I think that most people think of this era when you think of Miami football, this one and probably the Jimmy Johnson era. And a big part of that is obviously the winning, but also some of the sanctions and things that went on here with Butch Davis at the helm. But Butch wasn't Miami's number one choice here. Miami actually wanted the current Colorado State head coach at the time, Sonny Lubick. But he withdrew himself from consideration to stay with the Rams. So that's when Miami went to their second choice in Butch, who was the defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys at that time. And he started off okay with the 1995 season. It wasn't anything to boast about, and it was really fairly average. They went 8-3. and three, But in December of 1995, things started cooking a little bit because the NCAA had announced that Miami would be subject to severe sanctions for numerous infractions that were committed within the Miami Athletic Department. And again, we'll spend more time on this in part two. But the ramifications that came out of this was, one, being forced to sit out postseason play, and two, they had a loss of 31 scholarships over the next three years. And we'll give you just a brief overview of what happened for some context. And so here's what went down. So the first thing is that they were fraudulently obtaining Pell Grants, which involved 60 athletes and more than $220,000. The university had also provided or allowed over $400,000 worth of improper benefits to the football program. They also had a failure to implement their own drug testing program. And to top it all off, school officials didn't even have control over the program. And this feels awfully familiar to USC and our podcast that covered their sanctions as well. So go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But one thing that the NCAA outlined there is that there was a lack of institutional control with Pete Carroll, the athletic department over the USC football program. Some people said something similar to what happened at Ohio State with the Tattoo Gate scandal, and we just finished up recording those pods 
over the last couple of weeks, but it felt awfully similar here. So the aftermath of these ramifications was pretty bad. There was there were also some other violent incidents that led to some suspensions, but Miami still finished the, the 1996 season nine and three. So all things considered, I mean that's a pretty good year. Now at this point, we get to a low point in the 1997 season, and you knew it was coming because it not only fluctuates naturally, you're not going to be very good every year, but the fact that you're losing scholarships. You're losing players, there are suspensions. It's not going to be a perfect season every time. Miami went 5-6 and six in 1997, which included a loss to Florida State by the score 47 nothing. So you have a losing season and you get rocked by your rival. Not a good look. But the Hurricanes bounced back very quickly in 1998, going 9-3 again. So a lot of average years, but... The fact that they bounced back so quickly led to high expectations for the 1999 season. And this started off successfully with a win over Ohio State. But this success was not continued as they found losses along the way to Florida State and Penn State. But they did rebound to win the final four games of that season. So now this brings us to the year 2000. And Miami had a great year. They beat Florida State, so they got over that hump and beat their rival. But they were left out of the national championship game that year, which did feature Florida State and Oklahoma, even though Miami beat Florida State earlier. Miami only had the one loss that year, and that was to the Washington Huskies, who had also beaten Oklahoma that year. So it's kind of funny. We have like a love triangle going on here with multiple programs. It's funny how all these teams were tied together. Clearly, these were some of the top teams in the country for the 2000 season. But... I mean, this Miami team may have been probably one of the best teams to ever do it that didn't win a national championship. And other than I looked at some of the other teams that were really good that didn't win at all, this would be 2002 Miami, 2005 USC, and 2009 Florida. And other than that, I really don't think it's even that close. I mean, I'm sure there are other teams and other programs that people will argue. But the reason why Miami didn't play in this national championship game is due to the BCS system voting Florida State to face Oklahoma. It pretty much leapfrogged the Seminoles over the Hurricanes in their ranking. And this is one of the reasons why the BCS voting system was ever really a good fit. Miami had won that head-to-head matchup, and they had that weight to hold, but the computer ranking said, you know what, nope, we like Florida State here over Miami, so we're going to bump them up, and they're going to play Oklahoma for the national championship. And fun fact, in both human polls that year, everybody had Miami ranked ahead of Florida State. So clearly, there was a disconnect, and people, I mean, no one liked the BCS system anyways. So, But this ends the 2000 season with Miami, with a 37-20 to 20 win over the Florida Gators in the Sugar Bowl. Then in January of 2001, Butch left the program to become the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. So again, a lot of these guys come in with a short tenure, five, six, seven years, whatever the case may be end up taking a bigger head coaching job elsewhere. And we've seen this a lot with coaches leaving Miami to be a head coach in the NFL. So now we move into our final era, the Larry Coker era. And with how angry Miami was with how the 2000 season ended with them being left out of the national championship, they were on the hunt for another successful year. And they destroyed most of their opponents this year 
and they played Nebraska in the Rose Bowl, where Miami won their national championship, taking a 34 to nothing halftime lead, cruising to a win for the 2001 season. So that was their most recent national championship, and they haven't won one since. But that team might be the best in college football history. And they have the draft picks to prove it, as well as an undefeated national championship season. So it's really hard to argue against that. But when you have the names of Sean Taylor, Vince Wilfark, to just name a few, but the 2000 NFL draft featured six players drafted in the first round with 38 players drafted overall. And that's just absurd numbers. Especially, let's not remember, they had the loss of scholarships and those ramifications from what the NCAA found in their investigation. So it's not like that they had their pick of the litter every time at Miami. They lost scholarships. And so when you lose scholarships, you're essentially losing players because good players aren't necessarily just going to come come to your program because you have the name, the image, and the rings to prove it. If you can't offer a scholarship, you're missing out on getting that player. So the fact that they are able to work around that and put together one of the best teams ever is very impressive. Now, the 2002 season was another year and another team that felt like they were very, very good and very talented. They defeated every opponent on their way to another national championship appearance, but they lost to the Ohio State Buckeyes in overtime, which really ended the true dominant run that the Miami Hurricanes had in their football program. And so now we actually have an actual downfall to look back on. But in 03, they had some offensive struggles at quarterback, but they didn't win the Big East and they won 11 games. And so overall, not bad. And a little cherry on top, they went to the Orange Bowl and beat Florida State. So that has to feel pretty good. And again, you can't be mad at an 11-win season after multiple national championships and a great tenure that they had the couple decades before. Obviously, the expectation at that time isn't to lose two games, but you can afford to have an 11-win season every now and then. But Miami then went on to join the ACC Conference in 2004, and it wasn't really a smooth transition because they suffered three conference losses that year. They then went on to lose a couple more games in 2005, and they struggled a lot in 2006, only going 7-6 and six that year. And they have stayed at the bottom for a while. In 2007, they had a losing record under new head coach Randy Shannon and didn't do much better in 2008. So at this point in our research, this is where we stopped it's been a lot of the same stuff with Miami since then. And now we move into the present day. Miami has an opportunity here to make themselves relevant again and possibly sneak their way back as a dark horse power or a modern day power because they have a new head coach in Mario Cristobal who came over from Oregon. And he was a really good get for them because Miami, I don't think they really have much of an image right now. And that's because they've been irrelevant for such a long time they haven't won a national championship since 01 they probably could have won one in 02 they had that controversial call past interference was it past interference was it not past interference so they could have repeated then but they haven't done anything and so now you don't really have a bad image you have no image at all and i would argue that's probably one of the worst things for your program but you do get mario cristobal who is a good recruiter he can develop players, and he took the Oregon football program, which was obviously successful under Chip Kelly, but it really died after 
chip left and they were a bad team and mario was able to come in and build that program back up they were winning pac-12 championships they had justin herbert at quarterback so you know that he can recruit and obviously they beat ohio state early on last year so they've won big games now granted the rest of that season last year for the oregon ducks didn't end well they lost some games they probably should have lost some more games than they did and they got blown out by utah so clearly there was something going on in that program, but Mario wanted out, and Miami wanted him, threw a lot of money his way, and so he jumped on that. And look, Miami is a historically great program. They're like a USC, where they have the data to look back on and say, hey, we're good. We're just not a modern-day power at all. So now both USC and Miami have brought on top-tier talent, in terms of a head coach, and they're just looking to become relevant again. And so we'll see what Mario can do. I imagine that he'll try to recruit that home state of Florida a little bit better. Florida is one of probably the top three states in terms of high school football talent. It's really California, Texas, and Florida that seem to be the big ones. And if you look at the top three football programs in the state of Florida, the Florida Gators, the Florida State Seminoles, the Miami Hurricanes, all three of those programs stink right now. The Florida Gators have been on a little bit of a downfall the last couple of years. Miami's done nothing, and they haven't been relevant at all. And Florida State's been really bad. Florida State won a national championship in 2013. Jimbo Fisher left. He's now the head coach at Texas A&M. But Florida State has been really bad. And so not only are players leaving the state of Florida, but if you're Miami or any of these Florida programs, you don't want to keep every player. You know that you can't keep every player at home from the state of Florida. But if you can just get a leg up on some of the other in-state programs and keep just a couple top 100 guys or top 150 guys to stay, that's when you can really build your program. And so we'll see what Mario will do to try to really take advantage of that home state that he now has in Florida. So I'm excited to see what he does with that program. So that is going to conclude this week's episode of Sideline Exposure. Stay tuned for more content coming your way every Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to drop part two of Miami, and that's going to be looking to the NCAA investigations and sanctions and ramifications that came out of Miami. And I'm sure there's a lot. And so stay tuned for that coming out next week. But you can stay up to date with us and our plans on our socials and our social media. So you can find us at Sideline Exposure on everything other than Twitter, because Twitter has their stupid character limit and the username or whatever. And so that's at side exposure, but at silent exposure on everything else, as always ratings and reviews are much appreciated. So thank you to everyone who has dropped one already and stay tuned for part two coming your way next week. Thanks for listening.